Will you turn with me in your Bibles to the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, and we are going to conclude this morning the series of expositions through the great prayer of the Apostle Paul in verse 14 to verse 21 of the chapter. And I invite you to read with me this morning the concluding two verses of the Apostles' Prayer in verse 20 and 21, the great doxology with which the Apostles' intercession closes. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Thanks be to his most holy name. Now we are returning, as many of you realize, for the fourth and final time this morning to surely one of the greatest passages in the whole of the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. It is, moreover, surely one of the grandest prayers in all of Scripture. And as I have reminded you, if you and I would truly learn what it is to pray, we can find no better place than by turning to the prayers of the Apostle Paul as they are scattered through several of his epistles, and from these great examples, we may begin to learn the lesson of how to pray and what we should, as Christian men and women, be praying for. And you will recall that we considered the prayer, first of all, generally, and then in two following sermons, we looked particularly at the posture of the prayer and the person to whom the prayer was addressed, the Father in heaven, and finally last Sunday morning to the great purpose of the prayer, that we might be strengthened in our inner being with might by the Holy Spirit of God, that our lives might be patterned upon Christ, but above all in this fellowship we might be grounded in his love that has those great quadratic dimensions, its breadth and its length, its height and its depth, to know the love of Christ which surpasses human understanding. Now, indeed, we have been seeing on these Lord Day, Lord's Day mornings that the apostle has soared to unbelievable heights, to breathtaking distances. And here we have the grandest of all petitions, the very highest heights of desire for the people of God, if you like. And so, having seen how the apostle prays for the good of God's people, I want you to focus with me this morning upon that grand climax to his prayer, where he turns from the consideration of the good of God's people and focuses instead upon the glory of God's name. For the conclusion to this great prayer, beloved, is nothing if it is not the most overflowing and outflowing 
doxology in Scripture. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all you ask or even think, according to the power that is within us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And I want to suggest to you, my dear friends, this morning that there are three great dimensions that we need to consider together for our encouragement and the strengthening of our spirits this morning. But in this grand doxology, there is the sufficiency of God's power. And there is also the standard that the apostle gives us for our encouragement. And thirdly, there is above all else the supremacy of God's glory. And oh, may we all pray this morning that the blessed Holy Spirit of God will enlighten our minds in understanding these things, that he will draw near to us and encourage our hearts as we consider these grand truths. And more than that, he will lift up our spirits for some of us are disconsolate and discouraged and depressed. And we need the reminder that the God whom we worship is the God of infinite and limitless power. And so I invite you then first to consider with me the sufficiency of God's power. And surely we read of that in the beginning of verse 20. Now unto him, says Paul, but is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or even imagine. Now, surely you and I are immediately struck by the apostle's conception of God. It must be said of us as modern Christians, so often must it not, that our God is too small. And this is not the apostle's conception of God at all. Now unto him that is able to do immeasurably more. And that great thought, as I say, is surely summed up in the caption I have given you, the sufficiency of his power. I want you to see this in the light of two things as we explore this part of the text in front of us. I want you to see it, first of all, in the light of the apostles' astounding requests. Now, let me remind you that what the apostle has been praying for all through these verses, as we have studied them together, are no little things of the Christian life. They're no mere irrelevances that the apostle has been mentioning as he's poured out his heart in heartfelt intercession to God. But as you think of these requests, being strengthened with power by the energizer, the Spirit of God who indwells the heart of the Christian, that he might know a richer and still richer presence of the Lord Jesus, that this in turn will lead to living in love together, grounded and founded in it, and discovering the immense love of Christ that is beyond human comprehension. 
until the prayer reached its great climax, you remember, when he says that we might be filled with all the measure of the blessings that God is willing to give us, filled with all the fullness of God himself. You stand aback from this prayer, don't you? And you say, why, the very measure of the things that he is asking for shows that there must be a very great God indeed who is able and willing to give these things. Because he has prayed that every one of them might enter into the fullness of all their privileges in Christ. And the totality of God's purposes might be fulfilled, every one of them, in their lives. I believe it's Alexander McLaren, the famous commentator upon Scripture, who said of this prayer, listen. He said it's closely knit, with thought melting into thought, until they open out into one another, like some majestic suite of apartments in a great palace, each leading into a loftier and more spacious hall, each drawing us ever nearer the presence chamber of God until at last we stand there filled with all the fullness of God himself. He has soared indeed to breathtaking heights, the grandest of petitions, the very highest Heights of desire are here in this prayer. And beloved, only a God of infinite power and infinite resources is able to answer a prayer like that. But I want you to approach this doxology to see the sufficiency of God's power in a second way, not only in the light of the prayer itself, but in the light of the language that the apostle uses as he concludes in that great doxology. In other words, he uses the utmost of human language to set forth the infinite ability of God to do for his people what he will do for them. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at the language of that verse, verse 20. Do you notice what the apostle is doing? He's building language upon language upon language. He begins by saying that God is able to do what we ask. And you might say to yourself, well, that is sufficient, surely. But then secondly, he goes further. And he says that God is able even to do what we dare not ask and can only imagine. And when you think of your life of prayer, surely there are those times when the Spirit of God is so much upon your heart and mind, so moving upon your human spirit, that you are moved to pray for things you cannot even utter, things that you imagine, you think about, And that is what the apostle is saying here, but in our devotion, even when our imagination outstrips our requests, God is able to do even that. But then he goes further. 
And he says he's able to do above all that. And he doesn't stop there. Still more he is able to do far above all that, he says. Until finally his language comes to the uttermost of human speech. He is able to do infinitely far more than all that. Someone has described the language of the Apostle Paul as the use of super superlatives. And those of you who know Greek and can consult your Greek testament, see how he takes the Greek word hyper and he adds it to the Greek word perisos and abundance to make an altogether new Greek word that hadn't existed before, where he says super ek perisu. A super superlative. He is able to do infinitely, far above all that you can ask or even imagine. Now do you see, my dear friends, he is using the utmost resources of human speech to persuade you and persuade me that in our gracious covenant-keeping God, there is a sufficiency of power for every need of ours, a superabundance of grace to help in time of need. Oh, my dear friends, do you consider sufficiently what this means? You think of the scriptures, perhaps, with me this morning and the life of Abraham concerning which our deacon read to us. And you remember that there was Abraham and there was Sarah, both of them old beyond the ability, humanly speaking, ever to bear children. And moreover, she a barren woman all her life, childless. And the Lord God Almighty comes to this couple and says at such and such a time, Sarah shall give birth to the child of promise. And we find, according to the Apostle Paul, that Abraham was fully assured that what God had promised, what? He was abundantly able to perform and to do for us what was humanly impossible. Or you think with me again this morning in the scriptures in the life of the prophet Jeremiah in those desolating and devastating days of Jerusalem's humility and humiliation. The armies of the aliens surrounding the city walls, all is lost, the people said. And God in that hour came to Jeremiah and said it is but for a season. And in 70 years, my people will be restored again. And do you recall how he responded? Ah, Lord God, he says, thou hast made the heavens and the earth, and nothing shall be impossible with thee. And so deliverance came, and we read in Psalm 137 that we were like those that were dreaming when we saw the manifesting of God's right hand of power in our deliverance. The Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. And so we could go on and on and on, all through Scripture. Hyper ek 
Harisu. He is able to do infinitely far more than we ask or even imagine. My dear friend in Christ, how do you pray this morning? How do you pray? We say we believe in God Almighty and immediately we restrict him so often, don't we? By our limited faith or what we should call it by its real name, by our unbelief. And there are some of us sitting here this morning who are in very trying circumstances and very difficult days indeed. And I want to exhort you, my dear brother or sister in Christ, don't look at your circumstances merely. Don't look at what is happening to you day by day, a painful body, an uncertain future, pressures in your work, problems in your church, and immediately restrict God by your limited faith. Beloved, we are founded not in our faith. It's not our faith that saves us. It is God's omnipotent power. It's not our desires or even our highest conceptions of what he can do, but is to be the measure of our prayers and our hopes, but the superabundance of a God who surprises us with the richness of his grace. I believe it's John Newton who says in one of his great hymns in prayer, Thou art coming to a king, Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power as such, you can never ask too much. The sufficiency of God's power. It's Charles Hodge who says of this passage, God is not only unlimited in himself, but he is unrestricted by our prayers and our knowledge. Now, secondly, do you notice with me there is the standard for our encouragement at the end of verse 20? Do you see how the apostle puts it there? God is able to do far more than we ask or think according to his power that is at work within us. Now, my dear friend, you and I need to think about this passage, this part of the verse, because it answers the question that has troubled so many of us about prayer. How may I be sure we have said that God is the God of all power and sufficiency? What token has he given me that he's able to do what I ask and more than able to do what I ask or even think? And this is a real question because the infinite God is so far beyond our comprehension that we might not otherwise know what he is able to do or not do unless he had revealed this to us in his word, unless he had given us some standard by which we might know his ability to hear and answer prayer. So he's given us this standard according to the power that is at work in us. Now, what does this mean? 
Well, what it means is simply this. He's given us an instance. He's given us a proof of his infinite power. His infinite power is beyond our understanding. We cannot see it. We can dimly sense it and feel it. But here, he says, in your own life, dear Christian brother, is a token and a proof and an example and an instance of what I am able to do. And it's a reference, of course, to the indwelling Spirit of God and what has happened to us already in our Christian lives. According to the power of the Spirit of God that is already at work within you. Now, very simply, it means this, if not more than this. But these Ephesians were to consider as they read these words of the apostle. What has happened in my life and heart? What changes have come about? Well, they began to say, once I was dead in trespasses and sins. And now I have been taken out of that fearful condition of spiritual death that would have led me to everlasting death, and I've been made alive with Christ Jesus my Lord. Why, once I was exposed to the dread wrath of God that rested upon me, but now instead he has received me, and I am resting in his loving arms. Once I was far off from God and the promises of his covenant of salvation, but now he has drawn me near to him. Once I was a worshipper in the temple of Diana, there in Ephesus. But now I have become a temple myself, the temple of the living God. And you see, the Ephesian Christian would have sat down and said to him, this himself, this is what the apostle means, according to the power that is already at work within me. This is the standard that God has given me to judge what he will yet do for me. But he has taken me out of that condition of spiritual death and seated me in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, my dear friend, have you considered this sufficiently, I wonder? Where you once were, six months ago, a year ago, Ten years ago, whatever it may be, where you are now, by the power of God that is at work within you. My dear friend, the mighty power of God, in these days when we are tempted to say, ah, oh, his power we should see in signs and wonders, as in certain churches. Ah, oh, his power we should see in this or that extraordinary manifestation of his might. What we really need to see is what the apostle brings to us here. But the mighty power of God is demonstrated most clearly and fully in my conversion, in your regeneration. What a great thing God Almighty did. And what a great thing he is continuing to do in your sanctification day by day. The hosts of hell encompass you. The temptations of evil surround you. In every way, there is an obstacle 
in your course as you run towards the celestial city. By what power do you overcome these temptations? Do you go round these obstacles? Do you defy the powers of hell by the power that is at work within you? And oh, what a glorious work of God there is in every child of God, in every regenerating work of the Spirit, in every act of sanctification by the power of the Spirit. And this is the measure of the infinitely more that God is still willing to do for you as you bow your knee in prayer before the Father. Oh, my dear friend, when you think of that, do you not think of your conversion and say, this is something I never thought of? And I still don't fully appreciate. It is exceedingly, abundantly, above all that I asked or thought that he should put me in Christ. And the same mighty power of God is at work within us to do for us all the will and counsel of God to bring us into the fullness of God himself until we stand in that great day a glorious church not having spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing. The standard for our encouragement if he's done this for me will he not do that? Now, thirdly, as I draw to a conclusion, there is the supremacy of God's glory in verse 21. To him, says the apostle, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is a prayer, you see, that ends in doxology, the glory of God's name. And all true prayer should end on that note. Do you not remember in that great pattern prayer the Lord Jesus gave to us? Our Father who art in heaven, it ends with the great doxology for thine is the power and thine is the glory forever and ever. Amen. But how many of your prayers, how many of mine, actually end in that way? Oh, my dear friends, there is to be glory in the church. The Westminster Confession of Faith tells us that the supreme aim of the whole Bible is to give glory to God. And again and again through the scriptures, the writers remind us that the end of their writing, the purpose of their writing, is that all glory should be given to God. Do you realize that in Paul's 13 epistles, there are seven great doxologies? Do you realize that in Peter's two epistles, there are three great doxologies? Do you remember that in the book of Revelation, over and over again, John hears the voice of the vast multitude as the sound of many waters, as the roaring of mighty thunders, saying, Hallelujah! 
the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And as I read this here in this passage, I say God will be glorified in his works of creation, for his works of providence, but above all else, beloved, he will be glorified in the church. That is the primary sphere where the glory of God is to redound. And do you see how the apostle has got there? He gives glory to this great and all-sufficient God who saw us in our weakness and is making us strong by the indwelling of the Spirit, who saw us in our loneliness and has bestowed upon us the presence of his beloved Son, who saw us in a world of alienation and hostility and has given us the embracing assurance of his love in Christ, who saw us in our emptiness and his beginning to fill us with all the fullness of God. And what can the apostle say when he considers this? And to say all glory be to this God. Now I want you to notice as I finish. But the glory must indeed redound in the church. And we should enjoy doing it. In praise to God. When you think that all through eternity, the blessed will be together in endless anthems of praise and thanks to God for his wisdom and his power and his grace and his love in our salvation, and it will be an unending theme of praise in the courts above. The redeemed of the Lord shall forever say so. And as Newton says, when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. But what about here, in this congregation? Sing hymns to the glory of God. Exercise a ministry that redounds to his praise. Make those around you feel that the God you are praising is a God whose praise surpasses our understanding, who is worthy of all that we can bring and more. He is worthy to receive glory in the church. I read a young man's testimony just a few days ago who said this. One of the things that impressed me about this particular church was the obvious sincerity of those who sang the hymns as if they really meant the words. And it made me realize, he said, but their faith meant a lot to them and prepared the way for me to listen more attentively to the preaching of God's words. Let the glory of God redound, beloved, in our praise. But let the glory of God also redound in our prayers. Do you remember that this prayer came out of discouragement? Look at verse 13 again. I would not have you discouraged, says the apostle. Are you discouraged this morning? 
What a contrast between verse 13 and verse 21. Now unto this great all-sufficient God be all glory in the church. In your prayers, my dear friends, are you bringing in the revenue of glory to Almighty God, however He is dealing with you? And I recall in the covenanting days in Scotland the account of the death of that great covenanter Richard Cameron caught out on the moors and hanged in the grass market of Edinburgh. And these were cruel days. They lopped off his head and cut off his hands and put them in a sack and brought them to his old father, Alan Cameron, imprisoned for the same covenanting cause. And they showed these gruesome elements of his son to him. And old Alan Cameron bowed his head in prayer and said, Bless the Lord, who hath not wronged me or mine, but who all our days has followed us with his goodness and mercy, and so shall we live in his house forevermore. Let glory redound in the church, however God is dealing with you. And thirdly, in the church, not only in our praise and our prayer, but in our testimony, let us give all glory to God. In too many churches today, we find that they are forums to vent the doubts and unbelief of those who undermine the faith rather than undergird it. And far too many are theaters for parading the sensational and titillating the senses and entertaining the clientele who must be coaxed back again the next Lord's Day. And far too many, even in our Reformed tradition, have forgotten the biblical and Reformed teaching. But in the church, soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone must redound. And instead of being places where the church is glorified and praise comes from hearts that know the Lord, they have become places where all manner of man-centered activities take place. Oh, beloved, let us desire that our testimony individually and corporately together is that here is a place where we praise God from hearts that know the Lord and revel in all the great things that he is willing to do for us. From hearts that appreciate his goodness, that tell out the greatness of the Lord, that say to others, oh, magnify the Lord with me. In the church, let glory redound to God. And so in conclusion, the surpassing power of God, it is like trying to measure the immeasurable, isn't it? Let there then be glory in the church. Let praise redound to the honor of God. Let us sound an authentic note of celebration for the wonders of grace and the deeds of the Lord's hand amongst us. 
for faith's certainties, for grace's victories. And let us be encouraged this morning as we say with the Apostle Paul, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that this great passage may indeed have hands and feet to lift us out of ourself and into that realm in which the apostle was praying, the realm of the humanly impossible, but the divinely capable. And, O oh, our Father, may the blessings of this prayer bring forth in all our lives, both now and in the coming days, the rich fruit of a faithful obedience to God in Christ our Lord. Amen.